Hello, and welcome to the RCC Weekly Sermon Podcast. In week four of our This Is Us series, Pastor Kenny taught from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 40, about shaping a vision for having a no-neighbor-left-behind attitude. This Is Us is basically a series where we're looking at our name, which is Remembrance Community Church, and we're looking at each of these words and what they mean, and specifically, what does the Bible say to us about these things that we want to be and that we want to become as a church. Um, am I still hot? I feel like I'm loud. Check, check. Yeah, if, if, I'm, if I'm loud right now at the beginning, just wait for about five minutes till I get excited. <laughs> um, but remembrance is about us being a type of church that remembers who God is and what God has done and what God has promised and then living, doing the things that we do, making the plans that we do in response to that. And then community is just the context that God calls us to live this out in. In community, um, God works primarily through relationships. How many, how many people in this room, God has used relationships to transform your life, right? To learn about who God is and what God has done and what God has promised and then to respond together. And then we're going to be looking at this idea of the church is such a big uh, idea. We're going to have two weeks, and we're just going to look at two things from the Scripture that really point to the type of church that we want to be. Not all-encompassing every little thing that you could go on, but just two things that we think are foundational and important. And so today, we're going to be looking at the idea of being a church that has a no-neighbor-left-behind attitude. A no-neighbor-left-behind Attitude, and you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter twenty-four, and that is the the the, the passage that's going to give us some context, and then we're going to look at a, a, a passage from Matthew twenty-five. But Matthew twenty-four is where we'll start, and I hope that we see this morning at least these three things: that God is calling us as a church to live as if Jesus is the King, to live in this world as if Jesus is the King, with a mission of inviting others into the kingdom with a no-neighbor-left-behind attitude. Those are the three things that we're going to look at. And you need to know as we dig into this Matthew passage that Matthew is writing predominantly to a first-century Jewish audience, right? He's writing to this Jewish audience, and that does not mean that if we're not Jewish, or at least if we're not first-century Jews, that it's not relevant to us. It does not mean that. What it means is, is that when we read what Jesus is saying, we need to try our best to understand what it would have sounded like to that original audience, and, 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 then, and then, then we can figure out what does this mean for us today. So it's a very Jewish uh, uh, audience, and we'll start to dig into that. And so if you have your Bibles, you can look at Matthew 24, chapter 3, and you'll notice if, if, if you uh, have studied the scriptures at all or studied the gospels at all, you'll know this. If not, don't worry, I'll tell you that the book of Matthew is divided into five discourses, five sections. This is the fourth section, and it's called the Olivet Discourse. It's famously called that, and you'll see why here in a second. Matthew 24, uh, verse 3 says, while he, Jesus, was sitting on the Mount of Olives, or Olivet. That's why it's the Olivet Discourse. Fancy name, right? Uh, good thing he wasn't at the Olive Garden. It would be the Olive Garden Discourse. <laughs> while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, tell us when these things will happen. So 
The Olivet Discourse, you need to know, is written about the last week of Jesus' life here on this earth. Jesus has now entered into Jerusalem during the Passover feast, and it's going to be the last week. At the end of this week, he's going to die on the cross, and then on Sunday, he's going to rise from the dead. He's going to spend 40 days amongst the people, and then he's going to ascend into heaven. And he's having this conversation with them. It's the last week of his life. And he's been talking about what he, what he says in this passage. He calls these things. When are these things going to take place? These things, he's talking about the end times. He's talking about the end times when the Messiah is going to come back and make all things new. That's not a new concept in the New Testament. All through the Old Testament, there's glimpses of this. And then in the New Testament, it continues on that one day the Messiah will come back and make all things right. You guys look forward to that day? You ever watch the news and go, man, how could this all get righted? You ever, you ever wonder like, oh, there's no, there's no hope because humans are humans? That's not true. One day, as mind-blowing as that is, the Messiah will come back. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more suffering. All wrongs will be righted. And we look forward to that day. And they're, and they're asking, when is this going to happen? Jesus says a few things, and then we get to Matthew 24, 42. And he says, therefore, be alert, since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. If you have your paper Bible, you could circle, underline, or highlight this, be alert. Or some translations might say, stay awake. Be alert. And in your margins, write, be on mission. Because here's the context of the summary of this passage, is that the Jewish, first century Jewish uh, 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 listeners would have understood from what Jesus was saying that Jesus was the Messiah that came. And that he came the first time to die on the cross for our sins. To make us right with God so that we could be reconciled to God so that we can now have a relationship with God that comes through this Jesus. He came a first time and he's coming a second time. He's coming a second time. But what they don't understand is that there is going to be a space of time and in between time, in between when he comes the first time to die for our sins and he comes the second time to make all things new. And here's where it becomes relevant to us, because guess what? We live in the same age that they do. We live in the age of in between the first and the second coming. As some theologians call it, the, the, the already and the not yet. We live in between the already and the not yet. So what about the in between time? When he says stay alert, he's, he's, he's alluding to the fact, I'm giving you now instruction about what I'm calling you to do in between the time when I die on the cross, which will be a few days from him at this point when he's saying it, and the time when I come back, which he said, no one knows the time. You don't know the time when I come back, but stay alert in the in-between. That is relevant to us. And so Jesus says, stay alert. And then he tells five short parables that are supposed to teach us Each one is supposed to teach us something about what it looks like to be alert, to to live with a sense of urgency as if Jesus is coming back and what we do here matters eternally. 
What does it look like to do that? Each of these five things isn't an all-encompassing story that tells you everything. Each story tells you a piece, and you have to look at it all together. And that's important because we're going to look at one story, and I don't want us to think that it tells the whole story. I just want, want us to understand that it's a small part and an important part of a bigger story. Does that make sense? So he says these five short parables. Uh, the first one is about a homeowner and a thief. This short story Jesus tells about a homeowner and a thief. And the basic idea is that the thief will come when the homeowner is not expecting it. Otherwise, he's not a very good thief. Right? He's going to come when the homeowner is not going to expect it. So this kingdom is going to come the second time. Jesus is going to come the second time. And it won't be a time that we can predict or we can know when it comes. Although... So many people have tried to predict it and said they knew all of the signs that were happening. There's been books written, and yet, why don't we just listen to Jesus? He's like, no, those books aren't true because I've already told you I'm going to come like a thief in the night. You won't know when I'm coming. The second story he tells us is between a good and a wicked servant. And the the master goes away and he leaves his servants in charge of the, the kingdom and The good servant, while his master's away, keeps doing good. The wicked servant notices that his his master's far away. And it's like there's a substitute teacher at public school. And all of a sudden, he just does whatever he wants, and he's very unfaithful. And when the master comes back, the one who was unfaithful while he was waiting doesn't, doesn't get to remain in the kingdom. And the one that was faithful gets rewarded in the kingdom. And then he tells a story about 10 bridesmaids, right? Someone's going to get married. That's a pretty big bridal party. He has 10 bridesmaids. And back in the first century, a bridesmaid would have very specific uh, uh, tasks. And one of them was when the groom would show up, they were supposed to have these lamps ready. And it was, it was really important part of the ceremony. Well, it was taking a long time. And five of the bridesmaids were lazy and they didn't prepare. And when the, when the groom came back, they weren't prepared and they missed the party. So there's this idea of being prepared and not being lazy while he waits. And then there's this famous story about the talents. His servant leaves three of his servants in charge with, with his investment. He gives one five talents, which is a, a, a form of money, a lot of money actually. And this servant goes out and invests it and he doubles his reward, and he gets rewarded when the master comes back. And then another one has two talents, and he also doubles it. And the one that got one talent says, I, I knew that you were a bad master who was selfish and, and, and wasn't very trustworthy, so I was afraid of you, and I hid my talent, and, and I didn't do anything with it. Here's your one talent back. And, and he doesn't enter into the kingdom because he had a wrong view of his master, And so here's four kind of pictures of what it looks like, what kind of people that we need to be. And then he tells us one more story about a shepherd with his sheep and his goats. And that is the one that we're going to look at this morning. All of this context should help us understand. But in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 through 40, and we're only going to look at half of this story. It's a kind of a long one. It says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory... And all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him. 
Before we go any further, I want you to take special note of what I just said, what Jesus is saying, and bring that. He's talking about the Son of Man, isn't he? And he's going to come in his kingdom, right? In his glorious kingdom, in his glory and his throne. All of this stuff is very important, and the Jewish people would have been very alert to what Jesus was saying because it was very familiar, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. He says, all the nations will be gathered before him. That is important. The, the, the Son of Man is going to come. He's going to gather who? All the nations. On his glorious throne, he will gather all the nations. And he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger, and you took me in. And I was naked, and you clothed me. And I was sick, and you took care of me. And I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now this story is going to go on and he's going to give the other side to the left of the goats. And of course, they don't do all of these things. And that's what makes them the goats versus the sheep. They don't do all of these things. But here's three things that I told you that we want to look at. And the first one is this, that we are to live like Jesus is the king and is on the throne. It's one of the things we learn from the context of this passage, that we are to live like Jesus is the king and is on the throne. And if you have your paper Bible, I want you to circle, underline, or highlight his glorious throne in verse 31. And in the margins write, Jesus is king. The Jews would have said it like this. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, I told you to kind of burn in your brain some of these images. And now I want to take you back uh, probably 600 years before Jesus is born to a, a writing from the book of Daniel that these uh, Pharisees that would have heard this and, the, and these Jewish people that would have heard this would have been very familiar with. It's a prophecy about the end times when the Messiah would come back. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13b through 15, it says, suddenly, one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. Sound familiar? He approached the ancient of days, which is the father, and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. This is kingdom language. The Jewish people understood that, that God's people were encapsulated in what he called the kingdom of God. And that one day, when the king comes back, when the Messiah comes back, his kingdom would be over all of the earth. And that what they, what they missed often was that somehow all the nations were going to be involved here. 
But Jesus never hid that from them in the Old Testament or the New Testament or now. But that's always been his heart. So the question might be, what is the kingdom of God? Theologians talk about that all the time. They write books about it all the time. It's one of those things that's such a big concept that you really can't explain it simply in a few words. But many people have tried, and perhaps the best uh, definition that I've heard of the kingdom of God, although no, no, no definition is perfect, of course, but it's from this guy named Graham Goldsworthy. And in your notes, this is what he says. He says, God's kingdom equals God's people in God's place under God's rule. The kingdom of God is where God's people are in God's place and they're under God's rule. And so if we're going to break that down, we might ask, who are God's people? Who are God's people? Traditionally to the Jews, they would have thought the Jewish nation, Israel, is God's people. That's how they would have thought. But then in these passages, we see, he says, the king is going to gather from every nation. And so now, all who have entered the kingdom through the gate, is one way Jesus put it, which is through Jesus, all that have entered the kingdom through Jesus belong to the kingdom family. They belong to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, the people of the kingdom of God are all the people who have entered through Jesus. And another way to say that is, The church. The church with a big C is traditionally the global church. It's all believers from all time, including this time and forevermore. That is the people of God. That is the church. Those are the people of the kingdom. All who have entered through God's kingdom family are called the church through Jesus. And then where is God's place? If any of you guys ever gone on a vacation and you kind of look at the map or you Google stuff or you start asking people, where should I go, right? Maybe you do a Facebook search, friends, need help, where should I go for spring break? Well, here's something that's interesting. You cannot buy a ticket on any airline, on any cruise line, you can't Uber to the kingdom of God, can you? Right? So the kingdom of God is interesting. The place which we call the kingdom of God, is, it's, it's, it's somewhat invisible. It's the invisible kingdom, some people call it. The invisible kingdom. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this earth. But here's something interesting. It exists on this earth. Everywhere where God's people go, they take the kingdom with them. And when we gather here corporately, or when we, when we gather to serve our city, it is as if the kingdom of God has showed up on this earth. And so Jesus prayed when he, learned, when he taught us to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And we need to understand that that kingdom is living and breathing in and through us, his people. Wherever God's people go, wherever God's people gather, wherever God's people uh, 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 live on mission, the kingdom of God is present. It's God's people in God's place living under God's rule. So how do we live under God's rule as a people? It's a good question. Well, the first thing that we do is we remember who God is. Whenever we remember who God is, 
It is, it's as if we turn the lights on the kingdom, right? Because we're remembering who God is and that, therefore, who he is is influencing who we're becoming. And it's remembering what God has done. Remembering all the times he's been faithful in your own life. The climax of this is remembering what Jesus did on the cross, which began the whole ability for us to even have a relationship with God. For us who aren't Jewish, guess what? We get to be a part of the kingdom of God because we're part of all those nations. But that only happened because Jesus came the first time and died on the cross. And it's us remembering what God has promised. So many promises, but namely, Jesus promised that he would come back. He says, if I come back, then I'm going to take you, my people, to be where I am. And, and I'm preparing a place. He's prepla- the kingdom of God is now invisible, but guess what? It won't be invisible forever. And it, does, it isn't a place that doesn't exist. It's just a place that in our finite bodies we don't have access to now until we take our last breath or he rips open the skies and comes back like he will one day, gloriously. Then the kingdom of God will be very visible And it will be eternal. And so, how do we live under God's rule? We remember who God is, what God has done, and what God has promised. And we live out of response to that. And then specifically, if you want to get a little bit more like to the point, more less abstract and more concrete, it looks like this. We obey His teachings. The more we obey God's teaching, the more we're living under his rule because he's the king. What he says, go. When we're obedient to the king, we're kingdom people. And the power of the kingdom is moving and influence. Every time we choose to be obedient to what God teaches us to do, we're expanding the kingdom in a way. And when we gather together corporately in his name like we're doing right now, When we gather together corporately in his name, we're being obedient to his rule because he commands that we do this. This is important. The kingdom of God has just turned the lights on this morning and is is corporately focused. How many of you guys all week long focus on being a kingdom person like you do here? You focus that much on who God is and what God has done. No, once a week we get to do this and it supercharges us for the rest of the week where we have other things to do, but we want to, as much as we can, keep this in mind, right? And so we gather corporately in his name, and we serve him by serving others. This is how we be obedient to his rule. When we serve others, and we serve him by serving others. And here's here's a question. What is the biggest, most profound, most helpful way we can serve others, the nations? Which includes, starts with our neighbors, by the way. What is the number one way we can serve others? By telling them the gospel. By telling them about Jesus. By telling them what we've found to be true about the kingdom. By telling them that the king has come a first time and has opened the gates to the kingdom and we can enter now. And that he's coming back. And for those who enter now, they're going to get to live with him forever. They... Teaching them to be alert. Teaching them to see the invisible kingdom. Which isn't impossible to see. It's just hard to see with our human eyes. We need the church to see what God is doing. It's part of the 
mission of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible on this earth. So we tell them the good news that Jesus died for sinners like me. Because that's what Paul says to Timothy, a young apprentice. He goes, you can be confident of this, young Timothy, that Jesus came and died for sinners. And he said, of which I'm the worst. Jesus came to die for sinners like me. And so this is our kingdom mission. So the second thing in your notes, what we call this, to be the type of people that go out and gather the nations in, in Jesus' name, we call this being disciples who make disciples. Disciples are people who live like he's on the throne. They follow him as their king, Lord and Savior. They're saved through this Jesus, and they committed their life to following this Jesus. Those are disciples, and disciples are supposed to make disciples. We'll kind of unpack that a little bit more. But you can circle, underline, or highlight. In verse 32, it says, nations will be gathered. And then your margins, so that whenever you read this, I want you to write in your margins, Matthew 28, 17 through 20. When he says they're going to gather all the nations, you can write down Matthew 28, 17 through 20. And if you're a good student of the Bible, you could also write down Daniel 7, the one that we already read. But, but Matthew 28, 17 through 20. Now here's what happens. Jesus tells the Olivet Discourse. He tells them, be alert. And then he tells them these five stories. This is one of them. The very next thing we see in one chapter is all the rest of the stuff that happens in Jesus' last week. Right? He does a few things, but primarily he's taken, he's, he's hung on a cross, he's crucified, he rises from the dead, he spends some time with them, and then, and then he's going to ascend into heaven. This passage in Matthew 28 is that moment. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, and where he's ascended until he comes back, he says this, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Why? Because they saw him die. And they had heard little rumors like, oh, he rose from the dead. But that's like hard to take in. He rose from the dead. And then now they're seeing him with their own eyes. Some of them doubted, meaning it was hard for them to believe. It's unbelievable. And yet they're seeing it. And Jesus came near. And he said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you see in there, this is God's people. He's calling them God's people in, my, in, God's, in God's place. I'm with you on heaven and on earth. I'm with you in God's place under God's rule. And what is his rule? I want you to go. How is God going to gather the nations that he's been talking about for a thousand years? How is he going to gather the nations? Through us. I'm sending you on mission. You're going to be the agent that I use to gather the nations. Isn't that radical? This is what the church needs to understand. This is why we're here. You can circle, underline, or highlight if you're good at that or you like that and you have your paper Bible, inherit the kingdom. When it says inherit the kingdom, what this is saying, he's talking about the kingdom's sons and daughters. We are sons and daughters 
of the king. So here's another question. Who is worthy to be a son or daughter of the king? Who? Who on this earth is worthy to be a son or daughter of the king? The obvious answer is no one. (laughs) No one is worthy. The good news is that God offers entrance into the kingdom, into the king's presence through grace. It is not something that you can earn. It is not something that you can buy. It is not something that you can inherit from your earthly parents. It is something that you must receive. You must receive the gift of God, the gift of the gospel, the gift of salvation. And all who would receive it, he gives the right to have eternal life. To enter into the kingdom now and forevermore. Theologians have long said that this is salvation in Christ alone. By faith alone, through grace alone, this is a kingdom of grace. And God offers it to everyone. And so therefore, the last thing in your notes is that we should have a kingdom attitude of no neighbor left behind. No neighbor left behind. Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. He says, those who are hungry... Do you think people who have enough food in their refrigerator aren't hungry? I mean, is Jesus just talking about physical hunger here? I don't know. But I like to think like some of the most hungry people in the world are the people who have everything and they're not, they realize I'm still not satisfied with anything on this earth. Those who are hungry, those who are thirsty, those who are strangers, those without clothes, Those who are sick. Those who are in prison. John Wesley, old school pastor, he said this. He said he wants to live like this. To do all the good you can, by all the means you can, to all the souls you can, in every place you can, with all the zeal you can, as long as you ever can. That's what it looks like to have a no neighbor left behind attitude. Why? Why these people? Because no one deserves it. No one deserves it. And because God has opened up his heart to everyone, everyone is who he's after. No one deserves it. And everyone is desired by the father. So Jesus offers his love to all who would receive it. So Jesus' followers should love people unexpectedly, undeservedly, (laughs) unreservedly, unconditionally. And Jesus would add, and this is what it looks like to love people faithfully. And nothing less. One thing that this passage is not saying, people have gotten this wrong over the time when they read this, This is a short story that Jesus is telling that is telling you one piece of the big picture, not the big picture. You can't read this passage and think this is the whole weight of the gospel. Because if you did, you could say that doing good works like this would earn you salvation. If you do good works to these people, then you can enter into the kingdom. That is not how the original Jewish audience would have heard this. 
And that's not how we should read it. We do not do good works to be saved. We do these good works because we are saved. These are a response. Jesus is pretty much saying, like, for those of you who really understand the truth of the kingdom, of all that God has done for you when you didn't deserve it, God came from heaven to earth, died on a cross, a death that we did deserve. We deserve that death. We didn't deserve grace, and yet he gave it to us. We didn't deserve it. And so he says, now, if you really understand that and you live in response to that, this is what it would look like. You'll go out and you'd love people in my name in this way. So we do not do good works to be saved. We, we do good works because we are saved. And now the Jewish context here is interesting. That doing good to the poor is not a new concept that Jesus is bringing up here. You look at debates between rabbis before Jesus even came by a guy's name Hillel and these old rabbis that we have their writings now. They were talking about the importance of loving your neighbor before Jesus came. Did you know that? They understood that it was important to love your neighbor. So this isn't new. Even in Proverbs, verse 19 through 17, listen to what it says, 900 years before Jesus. Solomon said, this is wise. Kindness to the poor is a loan to the Lord. And he will give a reward to the lender. When we're kind to the poor, it's as if you're doing it for the Lord. This is written way before Jesus came and is in the Bible. And Jesus famously said that the greatest commandment is to love God and to love your neighbor. What this story is doing, this story is calling us to a deeper ethic of loving our neighbors. Jesus is calling us to a deeper ethic of loving our neighbors. And he often did that, not unlike the Good Samaritan. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? The Samaritan loves unexpectedly this this man who no one else would love. And the Good Samaritan loves somebody that in, in the society you never would have thought he would have practically loved. The prodigal son. This man is a prodigal. He grows up and he wants his father's inheritance before his father dies. His father gives it to him. He goes off and squanders it basically like in Vegas. And then he comes back. In society, they would have been like, oh, you got to teach him a lesson. And yet he doesn't. Well, he does. But the lesson is, I love you unconditionally. He receives him back. I want to invite the worship team back up. If you have your paper Bibles, you can circle, underline, or highlight for one of the least of these. When we say for one of the least of these, we should write in our, our, our boundary. This means love without boundaries. Love without boundaries. Perhaps the best thing that was written about this passage in Matthew 25 was from a commentary by a Klein Snodgrass who says this, and we'll kind of wrap up our time together unpacking this quote. He says, Christianity does not bring a new ethic that others do not know, right? They already know love, love your neighbor. It's not a new ethic. It brings a new motivation, a kingdom motivation, a new enabling, and a new understanding of the extent to which love is willing to go. What kind of a new motivation does this bring? 
What kind of a new motivation, a kingdom of motivation, you might say? Well, think about this. Some are motivated by selfish ambition, aren't they? I will do good because I want people to look at me and think I'm good. That's actually a selfish motivation. I'll do good when, when people, the workers, right? Like in Jesus' stories. When the master's around, they do the right thing. They work hard. Why? Because they want a promotion. But when the master goes away, they don't have integrity, do they? they their work slips. They're not working as unto the Lord. This is, this is motivated by selfish gain. Others by uh, an idea in the Old Testament called, and, and the New Testament called reciprocity. Reciprocity is basically this. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. Some people are motivated to do good to people who can do good back to them. So, it, so Jesus is going way beyond this with our motivation. And he's saying God's people are to be motivated by grace. People who are hungry can't traditionally do anything for you when you feed them. And when they're thirsty. And when they're sick. Or any of these things. There are people that can do nothing for you, and yet he's sending you to them to love them. It's a new motivation. And it's a new enabling. Kingdom enabling. We now have new lenses, kingdom lenses, by which we see people. We see people differently now because of what Jesus has done in and through our life. We have a new context as people who have been radically loved by God. We've been, God treats us better than we deserve. Therefore, we are to go out and treat people better than we think they deserve. And we also have a new enabling in the fact that we have the Holy Spirit. He's literally put himself inside of us through the Holy Spirit and is empowering us to do this work. And we have a new understanding of the extent of, to which God's love will go. We have this kingdom understanding where we have this God who is a shepherd who will leave the 99 to go after the one. And we're to be like that. We have a a God who is like a father who welcomes back his prodigal son and loves him unconditionally. And we have a God who sent his one and only son so that anybody, anybody who would receive his death on the cross on our behalf And his righteousness that he gives us through his authority would have eternal life. Anybody. And then he tells us to go and be the messenger of this good news. I want you to go out and and tell people about my love. And then he says, and when you love people, I take it personally. It's literally as if you are loving me. When you do something for the least of these, it's as if you did it to me, he says. So RCC, what would it look like to live as people who always remember Jesus is the king? Who is God calling you to bring this good news to? And what would it look like to have a no neighbor left behind approach as individuals and as a church? So the worship team is going to play some some music. 
Before we get into corporate singing together and communion, and then we send you off with a commission. And I want you to invite you during this time, look at your notes. There's a few reflection questions. I want you to kind of look through those. And then also, tomorrow is our third Monday, which we all get together and pray for. So we have a box up here. And what we do once a month on the third Sunday is we allow you to write down a prayer request and then put it in the box. And there's a pink card in your bulletin that says, Unexpected Love. And I want you guys to write down as we're worshiping at any time, and then you can come up anytime and put your card in the box. How is God calling you to a greater obedience? Is there something that God has put on your heart? Like, here's what I want you to be more obedient in as a kingdom person. And, and also, who is God calling you to share the gospel with? And on this one, I want you to think about people you know their name and you know their story. Who are the personal people that, that God has called you and put in your path to love and to share the gospel with? And then lastly, who are the least of these in our community? These are people you don't know their name or their story, but you know they're out there. And maybe God puts it on your heart and you're going to write down, these are the people that we should be praying for. These are the people that we should love. Thank you for listening to Remembrance Community Church Podcast. You can find all our weekly sermons online at remembrancecommunity.org forward slash sermons. Thank you for listening.